I invite you at this time to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we're in chapter 22, looking at verses 1 through 29. And this is part 3 of Paul's apologetic. Paul's apologetic is simply Paul's defense. He's making a defense uh, before the audience of those of his accusers. This is a term that would the apologia would have been a very familiar concept back in Paul's day with regard to the early uh, Greek and Roman jurisprudence that the accused has opportunity to give a defense. And this is the first of six that he'll make that carry us through the rest of the book of Acts and carry uh, Paul, of course, on beyond chapter 28 of our record into the hands and arms of his beloved Savior, having, as tradition tells us, his head removed from his body by Caesar, but not his soul from his Lord. Amen? Fully intact. And so will that body be one day. Praise the Lord. So we're looking at these defenses, and as we look at Paul, he had begun in just by way of brief review of how this has been broken down for us. Um, He's in verse 39 at the end of chapter 21. I beg you, he says of the tribune who after saving Paul from the mob who sought to beat him literally to death, he was rescued by the Roman soldiers who saw what was going on. They weren't about to get any reasonable explanation for what was happening. And so they chained Paul. They're taking him back up to the Antonia Fortress where he will be uh, tried, where they'll try to uh, find out what the issues really are, and up the steps he goes, and he pauses and turns to the tribune and says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, in first reading, we might think that Paul, if we were Paul, would have something different to say. Than what he says. He's speaking in polished high level Greek when he's talking to the Romans. It's impressed them. He knows his audience. Remember, we want to keep in mind the takeaways for our evangel, for our opportunities to share our gospel in our day and time. There are definitely principles here, although we won't have the same experience the apostle did, and most of the experiences that take place. This book is. Uh, descriptive, not prescriptive in all its regard, but there are definitely def- definitely principles that we can take away and apply. And so he always knows his audience. That's what strikes you about Paul. And now he's turning to the crowd who are uh, obviously uh, the Jews from Asia Minor and also the completed Jews who are now recognizing that Jesus is in fact their Messiah and they're Christian Jews now. But all of them zealous for the law. And so joining together because uh, Paul has been falsely accused uh, in sort of a threefold way of being against the Jewish people, of being against the law and being against the temple, all of which are false. And he wants to explain himself. He wants them to understand who he really is and what he really believes. He turns to them and wisely speaks to them in their native tongue, which it says he speaks to them in the Hebrew language, which would have been Aramaic. They spoke in Aramaic at the time. So he had gotten permission from the tribune, and 
There was a great hush as verse 40 says. He addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, starting out the same way Stephen did, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. So this has even formal legitimacy. This is straight up Roman Greek jurisprudence and even among the Hebrews. So you had a right to a trial. You had a right to be heard. The accused had a right to be heard. So there's nothing striking here, but it would the fact that he's speaking in a very educated Aramaic to them, they're listening. He's got their ears, especially in how he starts out when he says, I am a Jew. And he goes on from there. And he brings what I have in the outline is his credentials to them. And so we broke this down this way. This is... This defense is essentially a manifestation of the sovereignty of God in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we would be remiss if we missed the sovereignty of God in all of these things, including who Paul is, how, where he studied, who he studied under, the time frame he lives in. He is a creation of God. So that first point was Paul's credentials as he's giving them to him. He's a, he's a Jew. He's born in Tarsus and Cilicia, studied under the feet, at the feet of Gamaliel, the respected teacher, and on he goes. So he's giving his credentials so that he has buy-in with these people. He wants them to recognize, hey, I am one of you. And so we talked about how important that is to start out making a, a connection. Because when you start out with somebody who's opposed to the gospel, you are opposed. They're opposed to you. So you want to build connections. And that's exactly what he does. But I We always want to recognize the sovereignty of God as we go along. It's God who created Paul. It's not only God who created Paul physically at a at a point in time, as David writes, who knit Paul together in his, num- in his mother's womb at an, a precise time and in a precise place, but to bring about the things that Paul had or that God had appointed for Paul, as Jesus said in his conversion experience. I'm going to sh- you, you to go to Damascus where it will be re- revealed to you what has been appointed for you. These things were written how long ago? From before time began is the biblical language. From before the time began, God had this in mind. He's outside of the timeline continuum. He's not subject to time. We are, so it's hard for us to imagine that God is eternally in the present all the time. He's present in your past. He's present in your present. He's present in the future all the time. He's not subject. He's not constrained by time. He invented it. And he put us in that context. So it's kind of hard for us to imagine, but he knew who we were before you were born to Jeremiah. Before you were born, I knew you. Jeremiah makes that declaration. So we see that a, a number of places in the Bible where it's clear that God had in his mind, the per, not only the personhood, but the very details of every human being's life, or they would not be here. In him is life. He is the life. If he is not involved from a plant to a person, if they will not have life, they won't exist. He removes himself, whatever it is dies. See, So he understands that God has created him and he's submitting to whatever that plan and will of God is. 
Secondly, Paul's conversion, we looked at that. God sovereignly elects. So he not only had uh, Paul in mind, he not only had what he were going to be his providential appointments that he ordained before time began, as we see in Isaiah 46, 9 to 11, I am the Lord your God, I declare the end from the beginning. Or Daniel 4.35, there's nobody that can turn back his hand. There's nobody. It is God who makes both uh, prosperity and calamity. We see these kinds of, of, of things in Scripture, but we often don't allow them to affect or otherwise shape our worldview. And we should, because it's a Christian worldview. It's it, what are truths about God. He creates, he elects. So he appoints a time at which we will be for those that belong to him, will be converted, will, it will happen. And Jesus is the one who has to do that. Third, Paul's contact. So because God created us in a community of human beings, he uses other people uh, orchestrally. He uses us, he orchestrates human beings to cross paths at particular times. In this case, he uses his servant Ananias. And we finished last week talking about the instrumentality of Ananias, who Jesus went to. See, when, when it's in the, the, the historical record of the church, it's so that we can understand how he works. It, it doesn't mean we should go out onto a road and wait for Jesus to come as a big, bright, shining light. No, it, what's to take away there is the fact that God is still sovereign in making that appointment for you, in turning the light on. He, we can't bring ourselves from death to life spiritually. Dead is dead. We can't make light. We can't manufacture that. He has to bring that. He has to make sense. And some of us who came to Christ as adults can remember that moment when it happened. There was no human being that was involved at that point, at least in my, in my conversion experience. It began in New York City. And I didn't hear the gospel for some months later, but it was the Lord leading me because I had cried out to him in a suicide attempt. And he answered that call. There was nobody there. There was nobody. We have uh, wonderful access to, to Christians all around us now in the body of Christ. But it's him who appoints others. In this case, I had a desire. We had a desire to leave New York City. We did. We moved to Los Angeles area where my brother is. And he said, I want to take you somewhere. This is my Ananias. And he took me to church. That was a human being. In this case, my brother. He took me into a church where another human being was up at the pulpit doing his bidding, proclaiming and declaring the gospel, making Christ evident with his words and what he proclaimed. And because the light had been turned on, because God was already making my heart receptive to truth, he's about to introduce himself to me, it, he came alive. And so did my life. That's what we see <clears throat> by way of illustration here in the book of Acts as part of the record. But we would be, it would be foolish for us to think that that's how it has to happen every time, that we have to have a Damascus Road experience. We have to you know, go over and find a street called Straight and look for Ananias and all. No, we get into some craziness that way. But God still is sovereign over his appointments. And that's what we want to make sure and see. It is God who sovereignly connects, in this case, Ananias. And that's 
where we left off. And now what we want to see this morning as we read verse uh, 17 and following is point number four, uh, Paul's commission, which is 17 to 21. God sovereignly directs. And then point number five, which is <clears throat> Paul's conflict, verse 22 to 29. God sovereignly protects. And we see that in here in just a moment. So let's read verse 17 and following in Acts chapter 22. So he's just gotten through talking about the announcement or pronouncements that Ananias had made to him in his conversion experience. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, or saw him rather, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself watched over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this very, very helpful record of Paul's first defense. We pray that, Lord, you would allow us to see the things that are pertinent for us today. May we uh, separate ourselves from things that don't apply to us, that are simply illustrations for us, that are descriptive for us, and look for the prescriptions, the principles that are still active for us today as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This we ask in your name. Amen. So as he finished up in verse uh, 15 and 16, just before the passage we read, verse 15, he's talking about Ananias speaking here, and he says, for you will be a witness. He's telling Paul... So he's the instrument of Christ to tell Paul uh, what is his, the plan is for his life and his ministry as, a, as an apostle. For you will be a witness for him, that is Christ, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so before we depart from that to go into this uh, next point on his commission, I want to clarify something. This does not mean that water baptism washes away sin. Water baptism does not wash away sin in and of itself. The text says, wash away your sins Calling on his name. And the way the Greek is structured, that's what brings about a washing of the sins. And we have further texts. There's many of them. I'll give you a few just so we can support that, so we can move on this morning. But for instance, in Romans 10, 9 to 10. So this is Paul's gospel right here. Some of you have memorized this, and that's good. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, what? 
you, you might be saved. It depends on how close you are to water. You will be saved. It's by belief, isn't it? Call upon the name of the Lord. I just got through telling you, I know that by experience, it's exactly what I did in a desperate moment, crying out to God, asking his mercy. I believed when the gospel was presented to me. So you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified. That's uh, the first half of verse 10. So it's with the heart. It's with the mind. It's what you truly believe in your heart of hearts. I believe in Jesus as my Christ, as my Savior, who is the propitiation for my sins. And there are many. There are many. And he paid them all. He paid for them all that I might have eternal life. I believe, O oh Lord, I believe. That's salvation. Verse 13 of Romans 10. Listen to this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. There it is. It's calling on the name of the Lord will be saved. You reject the name. You will not cry out to him. You refuse to recognize your need for a savior. You're unsaved. 1 Corinthians 1, 14 to 17 makes it very clear. Listen to this. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Uh-oh. So they're not saved, right? Well, if you believe that water baptism saves, then we've got a problem here. He's, he's thankful that he didn't baptize Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say <clears throat> that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Now he's reflecting a little bit, clarifying. <clears throat> Beyond that, I, I don't know whether I baptized anyone. Are you going to be that vague about something that's that important if people are saved by water baptism? I'm not, I'm not sure if I baptized any more than that, but here it is. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There he goes. He just dichotomized the two. He just separated them. Baptism is not the gospel. Are we called to baptize, be baptized when we are saved? Of course. It's our public testimony that we actually do believe and have given our lives to the Messiah, Jesus, to follow him for the rest of our lives. We could spend more time on that, but I didn't want to move past that without clarifying because some people might be a little confused by the way Ananias puts it here, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. So point number four, Paul, this is Paul's commission now in verse 17 to 21. This is God sovereignly directing. So this is him going to Jerusalem. This would have been after his time in Damascus. This is the first telling of this. This is the first hearing we're getting of this. We've been with Paul as he was saved and went to Damascus and made attempts and came into Jerusalem. And Barnabas had to let them know, hey, this guy is with me. He's okay. He really has been converted. And, and, and we know the rest of that story. But we don't get this. This is interesting. This is very interesting. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple... I fell into a trance. So Paul makes no mention in this passage, however, of his Damascus experience. And a lot happened. Do you remember that? A lot happened in Damascus, didn't it? He doesn't make any mention of his uh, preaching in the synagogue here. You'd think he would. You, his experience in the Nabataean wilderness, 
for three years or the um, basket escape, the Arabian desert was from Galatians 1.17. You remember that. And then remember he, 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 he stayed in that wilderness so long in Arabia that he angered the king up there, the Nabataean king, and he was after him. He wanted to come into Damascus to have him put to death. This guy is annoying. I know how he feels. So he doesn't include that at all. And so he is let down over the wall in a basket, and that's from 2 Corinthians 11.33. But I want you to notice that. Remember, again, keep your eye on this. He knows his audience. There is nothing random that he leaves in or leaves out. So he makes a point of saying when he was praying in the temple. They like that, don't they? Yeah, the ones who were accusing him of being against the temple, against the people of God, and against the law of Moses. So I was in Jerusalem. What were you doing there? I was praying in the temple. This guy is legit. He, he is one of us. He is one of us. So it's another intentionally conciliatory thing that he's saying to ingratiate himself to his audience. Remember that. We need to remember that. I fell into a trance, he says. Now, this is getting interesting. The ecstasis in the Greek, it's a stronger use of that word. We get our word ecstasy from that, the English word ecstasy, but it's a stronger word. This is an amazing experience that he has. It's the same word that's used in chapter 10 regarding Peter when the food is, you know, the menu is let down before Peter. Look at this. This is buffet, buddy, right here. Indulge. Oh, I can't. I'm too good. I'm too devout as a Jew. Don't call unclean what I just told you is clean. Okay. Let's not get into the whole diet argument, shall we? Let's avoid that. But here's what Zodiati said, the Greek expert who's now with the Lord. An ecstasy in which the mind is for a time carried, as it were, out of or beyond itself, and lost. So ek is always out. Uh, uh, Existemi is out of your mind. So uh, ecstasia is out of stasis. Your normal way that you consciously communicate and think is not operating. You have been taken out of that. Perhaps Ezekiel, when he went back to the temple, we don't know what that looked like. He stayed in Babylon in body. How did he get to look at the temple? So God can do what he wants, doesn't he? Zodiades goes on, a trance, sacred ecstasy or rapture of the mind beyond itself when the use of the external senses are suspended and God reveals something in a particular manner, end quote. And I remind you again, this is for this time. We shouldn't necessarily, oh, there it is in the Bible. Therefore, when am I going to have this ecstatic experience? Well, they, the only way you're going to have that perhaps most likely is um, if you take illicit, illegal drugs of some kind. And we don't recommend that. So I, I want to just, uh, this is a little, just a little excursus, a little sidebar for those of you first hour people. Is this what we're talking about here? Is this experience generated by the physical brain? See? See that? No. 
There is something that is called the mind that is different than the physiological brain. And our scientists, the medical community, conflate the two, and so they remain confused. But not God's people. We understand that he can do things like this if he cares to. This is also, as Kistemacher says, the apostles experienced ecstasy when their minds became so intensely concentrated in prayer, they entered the presence of Jesus. When that happened, Jesus gave them instructions that related to their individual ministries, end quote. Did something similar, maybe not as intense, ever happen to you, where you're so deep in prayer with Christ that you know what you need to do next? Come on. Yes. Yes. So intently and fervently in prayer, but obviously coming out of your understanding of his clear objective revelation, which is his word, it will never depart from this. Don't get, don't get mystical. But what's revealed is you come up out of that prayer convinced that you were experiencing the spirit of the living Christ in that prayer, which is what we are in those times truly seeking the Lord and not departing from what the scriptures clearly uh, direct. You, you know, you're convinced of what you should do. This is like an intense form of that. He's getting direction. He's receiving his commission, a different for the apostle Paul, but some of these principles are still the same for us. We still Beseech the Lord. We still fast and pray, especially things that are so important to us. We pray and we pray and we come up and with a peace that defies our ability to understand it or even explain it. But we're at rest in our soul and we have peace in our spirit and in our mind. And somehow we know what to do. Are you with me? Yeah. It's being a Christian. It's belonging to Christ. Verse 18, And he saw and saw him saying to me, this is Paul's seeing Christ and saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Notice he uses the pronoun him. That catches my attention too. He didn't mention his name. He doesn't want to lose his audience. In fact, He never does use his name. The only time you hear it is when he's explaining his Damascus Road conversion and Jesus himself, when Paul asks, who are you? He says, I am what? I am who? Jesus of Nazareth. That's right. But notice Paul doesn't use that proper name. Strategy. So make haste and get her Get out of Jerusalem. This is like the epicenter of my religion. This is where I studied. This is where I was raised. I was studied under the best. I know the best how to get through to the Jews. This makes no sense to me. So, Paul is here obviously making it unequivocally clear that the Lord who spoke to him at Damascus is the same Lord who spoke to him in Jerusalem. So that connection is deliberately made, you see? At this point, the Lord doesn't tell him where to go, but he tells him to get out of Jerusalem quickly. I want you to put yourself in Paul's sandals. Does this make any sense to you? 
not only get out, but, you know, take your time, try to get a, an appointment at the synagogues, whatever, and then move on. Get out now. This doesn't make any sense. He was Saul, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Circumcised on the eighth day. He has his whole resume in Philippians 3, right? This doesn't make any sense. Of course you have me in Jerusalem to witness to the Jews. Why would you send me away? This is tantamount to telling him to abandon the ministry that he believes that he has absolutely been cultured for. You know, the whole poema, the whole, this is the story that's written. Why would you put me through the things that you put me through to bring me to this place and say, leave? Notice I'm speaking to you and I, folks. Why would he do that? I, I, I was raised up for this. So, because I want you to hold this point for something longer than the few minutes we have in a sermon, sometimes the very field of ministry that makes the most sense for us to harvest may be the very field Jesus calls you to what? Abandon. Why should we be surprised? Why would we be upset? Why would we do what Paul does? <laughs> Verse 19. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean you said? <laughs> and I said, I'm packing my bag, right? Okay, good, I'm out of here. No. I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. He's given the very reasons that he uses in his credentials to say, why would you have me leave? They, they, I, I'm on board with these people because I was the Saul that was going from town to town, pursuing those people of the way. I was dragging them off by papers from the high priest, making them come in. To, and taking them down to prison. Why? That doesn't make sense. Verse 20, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by. There's probably a lot of people here who saw me standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Here's, here's a man arguing to stay in the city that Jesus the Christ just said, Leave quickly. Can we be that bold sometimes? As we say in Wisconsin, oh, you betcha. I want to tell you something that we don't want to miss, though. This is an unwavering love for his people. Paul loves these people. I think it's beyond the love that we can fully understand. Remember, in the book of Romans, he, always, he also says he's ready to give up his salvation for their sake. He loves these people. Don't let me leave now. I don't mind risking my life. He's already proving that by where he's standing right now in chains. It doesn't make any sense. I saw Stephen Stone, and they all saw me approving of that. I got the buy-in. I'm your guy. What are you sending? Where, are you, where am I going to go? Oh, and he tells him, doesn't he? And what happens to the crowd when he does? We're getting to that point. So he loved his fellow Jews. To him, it made more sense, obviously, 
that he remains. He remembers the impact that he had at the synagogues in Damascus. For instance, in Acts 9, you remember in verse 19 to 22, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. See, this is his remembrance. This is his experience saying, he is the Son of God. I walked into those synagogues with my street cred, with my cred credentials, and I said, you have been wrong in putting him to death. We all have to admit that. And he's got the platform to say that to the Jews. You're going to let Peter do that? What's that? He's a fisherman. He's a Galilean fisherman. What are you letting him do that for? Oh, see what can happen to us? Jealousy? Hmm. Because somebody else is doing my gig. I could do better. Is that a temptation? Ah, uh, that would be a yes. Yep. Verse 21 of Acts 9, And all who heard him were amazed. He remembers this. And said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his na this name, Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Why are you sending me away? I love these people. I'm the guy. How convinced have you been that you are the guy or a gal? Am I alone on that? Oh, you're going to let me twist in the wind. You love doing that. You love letting me twist in the wind. I'm happy to do it because I love you all. It's true, isn't it? The fact that the Jews knew who Paul was as Saul before conversion lends legitimacy to his argument with Jesus right here that uh, I, they, I thought we were all set here. Surely they would have to acknowledge that only the power of God, I thought that was the plan, only the power of God could turn a Saul into a Paul, risk my life. This doesn't make sense. Paul was ready to risk his own life in Jerusalem. Clearly, we know that. He risked his life wherever he went, but he was willing to do it for, the, for Christ's sake and for the love of his fellow Jews. Furthermore, he was ready to give up his own eternal life, like I said, and that's in Romans 9, 3 to 5. For I, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh. Is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, this unfolds into a doxology, folks. Verse 21 of our text and he said to me, this is Jesus, after Paul makes his best appeal, what's the first word? Yes, sir. 
It makes no sense to me, but I'll go. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Why didn't you raise up a, a converted Gentile? I, I name, what, hundreds around the Mediterranean that you could pick. What about Timothy? Send him. Listen, here's the point I want you to get, so that's why it's in your notes, or it's in the outline. It's okay to appeal to God, to reason with him, but it's not okay to defy him. So don't press it. It's okay to say, Lord, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's tough. It's tough. McLaren said, let us say all that is in our hearts. He will listen. So patient. He's not a tyrant, God, is he? He's our father. He will listen and clear away hesitations and show us our path. Make us willing to walk in it, end quote. That's what he does. How's that for love? <laughs> Unmatched, I would suggest. So unpersuaded, Jesus issues a divine reiteration right here. No. Go. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. He yields to the Lord, and so should we. Sometimes God calls us to do things that to us seem totally contradictory to what makes sense. But still, we go. Because my life is His. I belong to Him. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And therefore, God, help me glorify you in my body. That word just lost the audience. Yes. What word is it? It even says verse 22. Take a look. Up to this, not sentence. <laughs> there it is. It's the trigger point. We're familiar with that today, aren't we? Up. Oh. What'd you say? We get excoriated. Give me a, wait, let me rephrase. I'll try to use a more. <laughs> wow. Up to this word, they listen to him. This is point number five, Paul's conflict, which we see God sovereignly protects. God sovereignly directs through the commission. And where he sovereignly directs you and I, he will solemnly direct, uh, protect. Excuse me. Okay? So that's what we see here. So they raised their voices. Here they go again. And said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. What happened to everything else I just told you people? It's gone. When you hit that trigger word, you're done, right? It's like, whoosh. 
they're not hearing anymore. Right? <laughs> Verse 23, and as they were, shout, they were shouting and they were throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. What a show. So the crowd blows up because of the claim that Christ commissioned him to speak to the Gentiles. How many times have we in this place talked from the Old Testament prophets where it was to include not just the Jews, but what? Who? All nations, which is another way of saying the Gentiles. Over and over, Isaiah, many other places. It was to include all nations, all peoples. I don't know why Jonah didn't get that. <laughs> what a stinker. So they're blown up now. They're making a big fuss. They're shouting, away with such a fellow from the earth. Now that's so much fanciful language for kill him. Give him back to us. You can leave the chains on or off. Doesn't make any difference. He doesn't deserve to live. That's how much hatred was in their hearts for the Gentiles. This is, it's one thing for Paul to make himself out as one of them. It's quite another to suggest that the Messiah would send him out to proclaim their salvation to somebody besides them. And there is nothing uglier than a frenzied hatred. And that's what we're saying. Nothing uglier than a frenzied hatred. So, of course, the tribune doesn't understand again. Can you blame him? How, how do you adjudicate this crazy mob that's flinging dust in the air, throwing their coats off just so that they're not constricted so that they, because he's up on the steps and that's a pretty far reach and they want to start throwing rocks. <laughs> I like what McLaren says here. It was useless to lay hold of any of these shrieking maniacs and try to get a reasonable word out of them. And verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. This wasn't a big deal to them. This is like the next order of course. This is what the Romans did to find out. You got to get the truth. If you don't, if, you, if people are saying one thing and another and there's lies and there's half-truths and all of that, the flogging will do it. The flagellum, take that whip with the leather stripes on it and the pieces of sharp bone and metal that will literally just pull the flesh off the person, they'll start giving you the truth. It was nothing to them. We saw that, how they handled that with Jesus. To find out what they were shouting against him like this, but when they had stretched him out for the whips, this is the brilliance of Paul. Would you have the presence of mind to think this way? In this situation, Paul said to the centurion, I love this, Who's standing by? Curious. <clears throat> is, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen uncondemned? I'm just, just floating that out there. He's all stretched out. This is, <laughs> he is brilliant in this, folks, this whole defense. So this is examined by flogging is their euphemism 
for torture. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, so now the centurion, right? He's so the lower, he's more of the, the sergeant or whatever. He's going to go to the commander in chief here. He's going to the tribune who's overseeing the whole thing. He's above the centurion and he's saying, what are you about to do? You know, I, I, he's probably thinking, what are you about to have me do under your command, right? For this man is a Roman citizen. Wouldn't you love to have a picture of the tribune's face? The same face of those Roman leaders in Philippi, right? When they locked him up, stretched him out in the stocks, pulling their joints apart. And they find out he's a Roman citizen, Paul, right? He's with Silas and they say, um, you're free to go. <laughs> no, you have him come down here and set us free. I want to talk to him. Would you? And then he comes down there, look, would you just please leave? <laughs> this, according to Suetonius and a number of, of historians back in the day, made it very clear. There was penalty of, to, of death if you, without provocation, without reason, and there isn't any reason at this point, uh, punished, imprisoned, clearly put to death, uh, a Roman citizen. You had that protection as a Roman citizen. So, he's a Roman citizen. Verse 25, but when they had stretched him out for the whips... Oh, no, we're down to verse 27. So the tribune came and said to him, this is Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? I'm just checking. <laughs> You're in trouble, buddy. And he said, yes. Huh. The tribune answered, I, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. You know what that just did? It far outranks this guy's citizenship. There were those who could, if they could muster up the money, they could purchase their citizenship, get a green card, the whole thing. Paul was freeborn, a natural-born Roman citizen. You are in deep water, friend. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid. I should say so. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. I want to talk to you for a minute as we're finishing up here about the principle of non-retaliation. Because there's some confusion with this. Uh, that Christians are not to retaliate when treated poorly, when insults are hurled at them. We, we don't retaliate. But when a law is broken, we may. Okay? So there's a, in the Old Testament, there's something called lex talionis. And it's the Latin for uh, proportional law. So in other words, an eye for an eye, as the text comes from, if you look at uh, Exodus 21, 23 to 25, you'll see that. It's an eye for an eye. It doesn't mean if somebody, you know, makes blinds you in one eye you have a right to pluck out his eye that that'd be foolish to think that way too no it's that the punishments should be proportional to the crime or the infraction that's the principle under Moses under the law but turn over to 
the new covenant of grace in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5 for a minute. just want to clarify this before we finish this morning. Acts 5, 38 to 41. Listen to this. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if someone, anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's like letting him have your car. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who refuses, who, one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So we want to be careful to understand when we see, read this about Paul, and he is using uh, his Roman citizen to get out of a jam. If someone is breaking a law, a criminal act towards you, you have a right for judicial recourse. Does that make sense? Okay. But in the whole host of other infractions that typically happen in our life where people are mocking us. And this is, this is a touchy culture that we're in right now. Insulting us, uh, abusing us. We don't retaliate. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is showing them a higher law. One higher than the Mosaic law. He's showing them the law or the principle of grace. The principle of non-retaliation. You see that with Paul throughout the book of Acts, throughout the history of the church. You see that he does not ever retaliate. But as in Philippi, as in this case, if you can extricate yourself from a situation because someone's breaking a law, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Okay? So the Roman objective to crush these uprisings that we've seen to quell the riotous outbreaks. This was their job to compel society to settle their differences calmly in courts. All of these things the Roman government was doing. They were trying to create something. They were trying to establish peace across the land, all of the land that they controlled. And they managed that in large measure. And it was referred to as Pax Romana. So it was Roman peace that prevailed. But what I wanted you to understand is we're ending this defense and with it carrying through the entirety of that defense, the sovereignty of God as we take away the effective principles for laying the groundwork with someone else, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God who made a way for the brand new tender, like a newly born baby was the church. She was, she was vulnerable she was vulnerable. She could have been crushed early on. God providentially using the Romans to preserve his servants should be striking to us. But not just in these individual accounts, but in the society that was created across the board. Did you know that the Romans invented concrete? They did. The Romans invented concrete and made a system of highways. So it was free, easy travel for people. They could avoid uprisings and riots and 
They kept the law. They kept the peace. And anybody who had issues, they were compelled to go and have it adjudicated properly according to law in the courts. God created that. And then they died off when he was done. That, that powerful nation, that Roman Empire, he said, I'm done with you. And they were done. And if he does that with us, he does it with us in our day. If he doesn't, praise the Lord. But you see, we have to understand that a sovereign God has written all of these things indelibly in what he's ordained. And I say that because I want all of us to find rest. That these things, how people react and respond, what they might do to us or not do to us, whether they come to Christ or not, is not for us to worry ourselves about. We're simply to proclaim Christ. We see the sovereignty of God in the proclamation of the Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we need to see emerging off these pages. That's what we need to take away from in our day and time with our culture and in the individual microcosm of our families where we work, our neighbors. And you need to have that kind of confidence that God is sovereign. This God, El Elyon, the God above all other gods, this God is also El Shaddai. He's God with limitless power who could say in question to us, the answer, of course, implied is, is there anything too, what, difficult for me? What happens to us when we get out from this place into our lives? Oh, embrace these truths, these rich truths. Apply these things in your life. There's two important points and we close. First, something to praise, as I said, God's sovereign appointments and his care over all. If you go and he says go and go quickly, he is also going with you. He will be there with you every step of the way. Everything you might suffer. Everything that might, the door might slam shut. It's him. I am the one, he says in Revelation, who closes the door and no man enters or opens the door that one might walk through. It's his universe. It's we belong to him. Secondly, something to practice. Fervent seeking and yielding to the plan and the will of God. Love for all the people. And a readiness to share Christ with anyone and everyone. You want my one word summary for what makes a man or woman an Apostle Paul? Love. Love. Love for Christ and love for those who are perishing. Begin to practice love and watch his whose name is love work through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. So filled with joy to be in this house with my brothers and sisters. There may be someone here who doesn't know you, O oh Lord, in this personal 
powerful, communal way. And so is not saved. I pray, O Lord, that you would manifest yourself to them. You have the power, O Lord, to shine a light in the most calloused heart, in the darkest recesses of their mind and their practice. You are a forgiving God, a patient God. You are a powerful God. So, Lord, go with us now. We know what we need to do, and we thank you for showing us. In Jesus' name, amen.